0: It was awesome, and it gave us some more time to not think about my, my
1: Firefly. Yeah, it's got me messed yeah, up. It's coming along really well, though. Come on, that's really looking nice.
2: Yeah, don't f*** it up. <laughs> 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 that's
3: <I'm> worried about. <laughs> John, he's going to get into existence. Don't do that.
0: <laughs> I know he's just messing with me. <laughs>
4: welcome to episode 12 of the plastic posse podcast we've got another great show for all you posse members out there today our feature segment's going to be an armor round table tj and i were joined by an all-star crew of treadheads to discuss tank modeling our guests for this were the handsome and talented john banani of course he was our first official guest on the posse armor modeler all-around good guy jc osborne and Neil Stokes, who's a renowned armor builder, author, researcher, and creator of the website Forbio Green. So that was a lot of fun. I think you guys are really going to enjoy that. Doug, TJ, we're an even dozen episodes in. Can you guys believe that? That's crazy. This is so cool.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it is pretty pretty nuts when you think about it.
4: So what's new with you guys? Uh, TJ, what's uh, going on over on the East Coast?
0: Not a whole lot. Um since the last time we recorded, one good thing that happened to me the other day, and I think you might have seen a couple of pictures of it, Scott, is I reorganized all my models on well, most of my models on my shelf. Doug, I need to send you the one picture of all my Star Wars kits. I don't, I don't know if I sent that to the group chat or not, but I will when we're done because it's pretty impressive. Not as impressive as as two. Perfect grade Millennium Falcons, but you know, I guess it's about as good as you can get.
4: He does have two, not one, but two of the Fine Molds 172nd skill slave one kits. And those, those things are, are rare. Happened, Steve. Oh, how cool is that?
0: Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm really tempted to sell one because they're going for like at minimum $400. That's at minimum. I've seen them for more. That was just yesterday too. So January 15th. And there's actually none available that I could find on eBay of the Boba Fett Slave one. They had the Django Fett Slave one, which is more or less the same kit, but um, yeah.
5: And you know, right now with, with Mandalorian season two, with Boba Fett and Slave one in it, you know, that's, there's going to be a bigger demand for that kit now than there ever was. Oh yeah. That's why
0: why I'm tempted, but I don't know. I I got (laughs) to, like most modelers, I have a hard time letting go of stuff once I buy it. (laughs) Yeah.
4: It's really hard to find that kit because of the Mandalorian. I did find one and purchased it this week. But a strange thing is one of the guys on Facebook in one of our sci-fi groups found Bandai's release list for 2021, and almost every one of their kits was on that list. But strangely enough, the Boba Fett version of Slave 1 wasn't on that list.
5: Well, and other than the TIE Advance, Darth Vader's TIE Fighter, there were no TIEs on that list either.
4: Yeah, very strange. So I'm not really sure.
5: That bums me out. I want some more ties, and I want some tie interceptors.
4: Makes me wonder if maybe they're planning on branching out in the licensing, and maybe starting like Mandalorian specific kits. Maybe want to use the molds for those. I don't know.
0: But I mean, I will say this: I I absolutely love the Bandai Tie Fighter. It's so good. Just everything. It's just a fantastic kit. It's easy to build. It's obviously easy to paint because it's a Friggin tie fighter it's two colors essentially but but that is i think we've mentioned that before on the podcast that is to me that's like the ultimate palette cleanser build
4: you know guys we keep talking about doing a serial build of a tie fighter with the three of us i think uh over the next couple episodes let's firm that up and uh, let's do one and post some pictures to the facebook page what do you say sounds good to me i'd be
0: interested in it i'm like 99 percent sure i have at least one. I know I have Darth Vader's tie that I have not built. Well, I've built one, but I sold it. But I think I have, I'm pretty sure I have one that's unbuilt. I have one unbuilt tie and I've got two tie strikers. Uh, See, that's one I, I don't have, not in 70 second scale. I don't think. I have to go look.
5: That's one that you can still find. Well, I'll have to pick it up then. Okay. We wanted to let you know that this episode, episode 12 of the Triple P is sponsored by Robert Lara, Ian McCauley, and Terry Wilkinson. These three Posse members all used our new paypal.me link to help us out. Thanks, guys. We really appreciate it. If you're enjoying our podcast and you'd like to help us out, it's really easy. Just go to our website, plasticpossepodcast.buzzsprout.com. There's no www. In the upper right-hand corner, there's a heart icon. You can also access this heart link on any of our podcast episode pages on this site. Just click the little heart, and then you can donate any amount you'd like. We really appreciate the help and your support. If you don't want to donate, you can still support the show by taking a few moments leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Five-star reviews really help us get the show out to more people who are interested in scale modeling podcasts.
4: Episode 12 was also sponsored by Goodman Models. Thanks, Anthony, makers of the Super Sanding Blocks. If you don't have a set of these on your bench, you are really missing out. Anthony over there has some blocks headed our way for some prizes that we'll be giving away in future episodes. We're still kind of working on the details on that. So head on over to www.goodmanmodels.com and send Anthony an order. You won't be disappointed. I love mine.
0: We also want to give a shout out to our fellow scale modeling podcasts. They're all terrific, and each one kind of has their own unique take on the hobby. We have On the Bench down in Australia and they just released episode 102 featuring us when we interviewed uh, with them back. I want to say it was in the end of November. It's a, it was really fun yeah. They're It's part of a series of special episodes they're doing. So it's a little shorter than usual. So give that a listen. It's good, obviously, because we're on it. Well, yeah. <laughs> Then there's Plastic Model Mojo down in Kentucky. Mike and Dave just released episode 29, I believe, on Friday. I think yesterday, the 15th. Then the Scale Model Podcast, Stuart and Friends, they're up to episode 62. And then the newcomers, we have Just Making Conversation, James and Malcolm, have already made it to episode four. And then Model Geeks just released their inaugural episode one.
4: You guys uh, heard that Model Geeks um, podcast yet? I did. I listened to it. Yeah, Justin and Scott and those guys, they did a good job. You kind of learn who they are. It sounds like they're, uh, you know, a lot of aircraft builders um, had a lot of uh, really good discussion points about their military careers and kind of what inspired them to become aircraft modelers.
0: And then in the same vein as the podcast, there's some other great content creators that we like to uh, give a shout out to and ask you guys to go check out. We have Sprue Pies with Frets. It's a blog run by Stephen Lee. He's got a pretty good take on the hobby. He's a really nice guy. And yeah. So please check that out. And then we also have Jim Bates, a scale Canadian TV YouTube channel. You might remember him. He was on our last episode. Also a really good guy.
4: Yeah, that's a that's a great vlog. And uh Stephen Lee, he's kind of come out of nowhere, but his sprue pies with frets, I read every one of those. He's a really good writer, and he always has an interesting take on the hobby.
0: On some business news. This is mostly, I guess, bad news, but I'm sure a lot of listeners are aware that Squadron mail order has closed down, and it seems like they closed down for good. Um, I know they're a a pretty big mail order distributor, and I think they also sold modeling products. I'm not not too up on them. I never uh, used their website.
4: Yeah, they were a real pioneer. You know, they were kind of that first generation, so to speak, uh, model distributor, and you know, Sprue Brothers and Andy's Hobby Headquarters. And a lot of those guys uh, came later on and Squadron kind of pioneered that. But I think they've been kind of going away for a while now.
5: Yeah. Anybody that's been modeling for more than 30 years remembers having their Squadron mail order catalogs. You could always always get a hold of one of those and, and order things the old fashioned way, like mail order actually, fill out a form and send it in to order what you wanted.
4: Well, in the meantime, you know, we do have some great, great model distributors here at the Posse. We're kind of partial to our boy Patrick Perales over at Andy's Hobby Headquarters. He always takes care of everyone really, really well. But yeah, it looks like the end of an era. I think JB, John Manani was kind of all over this. He was kind of the one for the most part that I saw that kind of broke this on Facebook this uh, last couple of weeks. Well, we've got our uh, T3485 group build that keeps going strong. Haven't had as many people uh, getting their kits across the finish line the last couple of weeks, but a lot of really good in process the shots on that, and uh, you know, different members that are joining the group that have started their kits now. TJ, you've kind of dove back into your uh, T3485 this week, haven't
0: you? I did. Um, I woke up this morning and I went for a run, and when I got back home, I was enjoying some coffee, and I decided to go ahead and pull it back out because I'm working on the Ryfield model Firefly, and I kind of let that stew a little bit because I'm trying to figure out kind of where I'm going to go with the weathering. So it's painted and everything. I've started the weathering, but I'm just kind of letting it brew a little bit, and uh, I kind of just wanted something to keep myself busy, and I figured I might as well start cracking that, that thing again. So I made some pretty good progress on it, um, and it's been really fun. I was saying before we recorded that, man, this is a great little kit. I mean, it really is.
4: You uh, you were going to shave off those fenders and use the photo etch ones, right?
0: I did. Uh, well, I haven't attached the photo etch fenders yet, but I shaved the plastic fenders off with a tip from Jonathan Anderson, a buddy of ours. And he said to just take your hobby blade and score the fender where it meets the slope of the, the side armor. A couple of times, and then from there, like because the styrene, you can pretty much snap it off. So I did that. I I set it up so I had a nice flat surface and scored it a couple times. And actually, I cut all the way through it, and it popped right off. And then you kind of sand down some of the little bits that get stuck on there. And it's—I mean—it
4: took me twenty minutes, if that. Looking forward to that. What's the next step after the fenders?
0: Well, I got to finish all the hull details before we start recording. uh, You. Got to listen to me sand some road wheels, bane of every armor modeler uh, out there because man, they suck. But there's nothing you can do about it. And then I got to do the tracks, so that'll probably be the next thing. I'm going to do the tracks probably the way uh, John did his, so you can see that in the the group build. He's got a nice album of of his build, so you can kind of with notes,
4: so you can kind of follow how he did it, which is pretty much what I'm doing. Yeah, with the uh, Elmer's glue on the inside set of road wheels, that kind of thing. I need to try that. I haven't done that before. It looks like a pretty good method, so maybe I'll join you there. Well, Doug, I know you've got one of those kits, but I think you've had kind of a bigger project on your bench. What have you been up to this week?
5: Uh, well, this, is this my digressions? Because I could digress for a long time about freaking drywall. I tell you what, I never, I never want to sand a model again because I've been <laughs> sanding and sanding and sanding drywall seams and I'll never get over this. I mean, it's a, it's, a big, it's a pretty big space that I'm going to be doing in the long run. And, oh my gosh,
4: I'm, I am not enjoying this. How, how, uh, how's the progress coming, though? It looks like you're getting closer, certainly.
5: Well, it's taking about three or four times longer than I was hoping you know I had it in my head how how well this was going to go and how long it was going to take for each part if i was right i'd have been done with the three rooms i was working on now i'd been i'd have been done a couple weeks ago but instead it looks like a three four weeks out before i can uh, get where i want to be
4: Well, it'll be worth it it's looking it's looking really really good
5: i'm pleased with what it looks like so far i just i'm just frustrated with the time it's taken
4: yeah i get that Any other digressions over uh, from you, Doug?
5: Wonder Woman 84 sucked. (laughs) (laughs) I am so glad I got that for free on HBO Max because my son pays for HBO Max and I didn't pay for it in the theater. Oh my gosh. It's a good thing. Pedro Pascal wears a helmet in Mandalorian because he just, it just, I see. I thought he was like the best part. I, I didn't like him. And that's, that's all fine. I just didn't like him in it. I don't know. I I'm I'm done. That's that was that's my digression. Wonder Woman eighty four. I mean, watch it if if you get a chance. You know, maybe for some continuity, see what what happens there. But uh, yeah.
4: So two thumbs way down from Doug on that one.
5: Well, one of the thumbs might be about you know halfway down <laughs> because there were a few redeeming parts. I mean, there are some things in there that I enjoyed, but. For the most part, I felt like it, it just, it just was a big disappointment. I mean, after the first one, which was such an amazing movie to this.
4: All right. Well, now that Doug has uh, that off of his chest, we've been talking about the uh, t thirty four eighty five group build for quite a while. Quite a few of the members have their builds done. Quite a few other members are getting close. So we're kind of thinking maybe uh, we start considering what our next group build is, going to look like Uh, what do you guys think about that do we want to do a another armor piece and if we do what does that look like or do we want to do another subject what do you guys think about that i think we branch out to another
5: subject whether it's aircraft whether it's it's sci-fi it doesn't matter to me i do sci-fi all the time and that's enjoyable um maybe i'd be the one to to step back on this one until that basement's finished i don't have a place
4: to do it yeah, I can see how that makes a lot of sense. What about a uh, Bandai TIE Fighter group build? Expanding what we were talking about a little bit earlier, TJ. What do you think of that?
0: Yeah, that's not a that's not a bad idea. My only concern is I don't know what the availability of that kit is currently. Because I know some people are having hard times finding Bandai Star Wars stuff. But I also heard a tell rumor that they, a lot of stuff's gone back into production. So they've started production again. So hopefully... It's going to be a little easier to find some of these what used to be ubiquitous kits. So that's a fun word. Ubiquitous ubiquitous. So, I mean, I I would say let's go ahead and I don't know. Let's take suggestions from our listeners. Send us a message on our Facebook page. Tell us what you you know? What do you think? The only stipulation that it should probably be is it should be a well-regarded kit that's more or less or brand new something that's pretty easy to find and kind of simple and, you know, no interior, you know, none of, none of that kind of stuff. No you know, third party type stuff, just a good, something you can build out of the box to make a good model.
4: Well, it seems like the Posse members have been really, really busy looking over here at the mailbag and it's kind of busting at the seams.
5: It's yeah, there's been a lot of feedback, a lot of feedback. So I'll go ahead and just jump right in. From our friend Hector Cologne. Hey guys, I've been listening to the show since episode one and have to tell you that each episode is better than the last. I wanted to thank you for allowing me to join you guys every other week. All the scale model podcasts have been my virtual hobby clubs. On behalf of the Butcho O'Hare Model Club here in Chicago, we would like to send you three a token of our appreciation. Can I get, well, he wants to send us t-shirts.
4: Yeah, thanks Hector.
5: Very nice. Thanks, Hector. And I have a question, Hector. Are the Blackhawks going to get any better? Because as of this recording, they're 0-2. I realize they're playing the champs, but man, it's frustrating. Anyway, I'll move on. I digress once more. <laughs> <laughs> That's a
4: little, a little bonus digression. Yep,
5: From our friend Jamie Stokes, congratulations on a cracker of a New Year's episode. Love the idea of the skill of completing a build. It is a definite skill set. It's about overcoming the dual fears of failure and success. I'd like to say that quantity of builds is good. Striving for quality is good too. As for TJ, stepping up to a bust is a challenge. I'm sharing how my busts and figures have evolved over the years. He sounds like he has the skills just working out how to adapt to a larger scale is the next step. Thanks, Jamie. Yeah, thanks. And uh, I'm sure Jamie or TJ will be paying close attention to that. Um, our good good friend Ray Davis is feeling better and says, says G'day, Scott, Doug, and TJ. G'day. <laughs> I think that's how he would have said it. I'm just listening to the last episode, waiting to pick our daughter up from her work. I just heard her shout out and wanted to say thanks very much for the heartfelt gesture. Hey, Scott, try not to spread that rumor around about the nurses. <laughs> i don't want to get into any trouble and found out by the minister of finance aka the wife okay he's only joking hope you're all doing well as well as your families take care guys hope to talk to you all soon thanks ray really enjoy your feedback
4: for those of you out there ray has a really really cool hobby too he he works with balloons hot air balloons down in australia where he's from so it's uh, pretty interesting what he does over there
5: Mike Talley is a fan of Dukes and writes to say, I was listening to, you, to your newest episode and hear the mention of socks for Christmas. My wonderful wife gave me two pair of tank socks. Nice. I oh, don't tank socks. Did you say Dukes or Dugs? Is it Dugs? Is it me? I mean, who's a fan of me? Well, you, you've got to fans start over. Here. I don't have a fan. <laughs> I,
4: don't, I don't even oh, think my kids are fans. Well, they must be fans. They got you a perfect grade Falcon. They are trying to suck,
5: suck up to me, that's all. All right. Terry Wilkinson, Wilkinson contributed to the posse. Much appreciated. He also said just finished episode 11 and TJ and Doug kicked ass. I I can't say ass. <laughs> okay, thanks, Terry. Justin Ryan responded to Scott's comment on our Facebook page about painting figures to be a bit of black magic by saying, Oh, come on, they aren't that difficult. Like I commented on the Model Geek post, what's the worst that can happen? Gotta strip and repaint? But lots of good video channels on YouTube for tips and techniques. Very, very true. David Brian Bridges said, still trying to get caught up on episodes, but really enjoyed Seven and the discussion about inspiration, a huge part of modeling for me. Keep up the good work, guys. James Skiffins of our sister podcast, Just Making conversation, sent in this feedback. Great episode, guys. You spoke about how you model and New Year's goals. I just wanted to add my thoughts about how you go about avoiding getting tripped up in your builds and not finishing them. I have the same issue, avoiding builds or steps because I'm afraid of a new technique or not matching the mind's eye of my build. I changed my approach to my builds a while back. Improvements take time and practice. Set a goal of one new thing about every build, a technique too. Thanks from james thanks james thanks james all right it's time for our main segment our first ever plastic posse podcast roundtable this will be an ongoing series of segments where we bring in multiple guests and discuss a subject or a genre or other topics relating to scale modeling today's roundtable is about armor modeling feature scott tj john bonani jc osborne and neil stokes enjoy
4: Welcome in, everybody, to our armor roundtable. we going to have a Treadhead discussion with some of the most interesting guys in the armor modeling realm of our hobby. To start off, we've got Neil Stokes. He's the creator of Forbio Green. He's a longtime armor modeler, big fan of his work. We've got TJ Holler from our podcast, who also is a great armor modeler. We've got John Banani. He's been on our show before. You guys have Heard from him, and he's a, a man of many talents, especially uh, in the uh, barbecue area, as well as armor modeling. And we've also got J.C. Osborne from the West Coast, who's a great armor modeler. With those brief introductions, Neil, introduce yourself
3: uh, to the group. My name is Neil Stokes. I've been modeling now for probably about a half a century. Started out as uh, building you know Airfix airplane kits as a small child with my dad. Like most kids, did pretty much everything, uh, you know, all the different genres, and, and uh, sort of settled in on armor modeling. Not really sure why. I think, you know, I just like the dirty, gritty feel of it. So yeah, mostly build World War II stuff, a little bit of post-war, mostly uh, British and Australian, a little bit of World War I stuff. And I've also been branching out into the Machine and Krieger sci-fi genre. Again, kind of like the whole sort of you know, gritty World War II in space kind of feel of that. Some of you may be uh, aware, I've been writing a few books over the last 10 years or so around the World War II Soviet armor space. Sort of accidentally, really, because I started out doing a, a trumpeter kit, started to do the brag book and do the research that you would do, and sort of forgot to stop. And 550 pages <laughs> later, I had the big red book of KVs. You know that was kind of how it started
4: a good effort for sure <laughs> machine and krieger i mean that's something that tj really likes and there seems to be a little bit of commonality with armor modelers uh, seem to really relate to mac kits
3: it was funny i got got into that way back in 1985 86 when the uh, the original nitto kits uh, appeared in australia uh, despite this accent i grew up in australia they were great. I mean, you know, they were multimedia kits. The, you know, there was obviously a whole lot of background genre there, but you know, this was pre-internet, so we really didn't have a whole idea of of, of what that was all about. But just love those kits. I actually still have the very first Super Armor fighting suit that I built back in the uh, the, the mid '80s. It's it's sitting in my cabinet. And of course, you know, when they re-released those uh, those kits around about the late two thousands. And then, of course, we had the internet and all sorts of, of background now started to, uh, to come out. Yeah, I mean, everybody's been getting into that stuff. It's, uh, it's really cool.
4: John Bonani, why don't you go next?
2: Yeah, thanks, Scott. And, and thanks, you know, you and TJ for hosting us. It's going to be a fun time. So a little bit of background about me. You know, I think my first armor model, I know what it was. It was Tamiya's Ancient King Tiger. Painted it in an ambush scheme, and I still have it. So maybe I can take a picture and post it. It's, it's pretty wretched, but uh, I think I was about six at the time. So you got to give me a little leeway. <laughs> um, you know, since that model, I, I stepped away like all, you know, I think all modelers for that matter, I've, I've boomeranged a couple times. So I left modeling till about 2001. A band of brothers came. In, and I remember the scene, I think it was episode three when the Yag tire comes over the hedgerow. And I was like, oh, or the Yag Panther, fake Yag Panther, comes over the hedgerow. I was like, oh man, I want to build armor models again. And my dad's like, okay, you're 16. You probably aren't that interested. Here's a King, Here's a, an old Tamiya Yog Tiger that I started. I finished that and kind of fell in love with it and, and went really hardcore from like 01 to 04 when I was in high school. Built a lot of models, went to a lot of model contests. And then college set in, left modeling, got a degree, went to work for the Air Force, and then found my way back into the hobby again and seriously, probably in the 2012, 13 timeframe. And that's, you know, since then I've been really hardcore, you know, started my Facebook page as a way to share my work. have gotten involved with a lot of not only publishers, but friends around the world. I have armor modeling to thank for all my friends, you know, have the privilege of not only me and you guys, but yeah, everybody on Facebook. So that's kind of my armor modeling saga. And you know, I have no favorites. I'll, I'll build almost anything. That's not true. I do have favorites. It's German tri camouflage schemes. Um, <laughs> I love airbrushing. So, yeah,
4: that's uh, that's me. J.C. Osborne.
1: Yeah, hi. I'm J.C. Osborne. Is originally from New England, from Rhode Island. I actually grew up there. Spent some time in Massachusetts. Moved to California back in 91. I can remember my first kit, the first kit I ever built. And, man, I had to be about eight, seven or eight years old. And that's a long time for me, believe me. It was a Renault Walker Bulldog. I can still remember all the glue marks that were on that thing. <laughs> and what what drove me into armor modeling was my dad was in the Sixth Armored Division in World War II. For years, as a kid growing up, his Bronze Star medal certificate hung on the wall in our apartment, and I was always just a totally enamored with that. Dad was a staff sergeant in the 212 field artillery, and so he's worked on some tanks. He's worked on a lot of half-tracks and M7s, the priests. So uh, that influence really kind of, you know, drove me into um, armor modeling. And, you know, and honestly, one of the other early modeling armor kits was much like John. I had the uh, the old Tamiya King Tiger. It was painted with a brush. (laughs) I don't have it with me now, but yeah. So that was then and built a little aircraft back in those days, mostly 70 second scale. And then like most people, you kind of, you know, discover other things in the world and you go do something else. Back in the late 90s, I had bought my first airbrush. Probably around 2000, 2001, I actually got a compressor. Uh, Before that, I was using, you know, compressed air cans. So Sorry. (laughs) <laughs> I know. huh? It was painful, trust me. The horror, the horror. <laughs> but when it was a really warm day, you know, the, the iciness of those cans were just wonderful and refreshing. <laughs> so then uh did a lot of aircraft modeling or, or back in the, the 2000s and up until maybe 2012, 2013. And once I came into uh, SMCG, which has been had a big influence on my my building, Pretty much started to focus on armor to where in the last couple of years, it's been my primary focus. You know, it's funny talking about back in the day, I've got an older boy who's I'm not going to tell you his age because <laughs> he's up there because I'm up there. But I had built him a uh, Tamiya Panzer four D, the old kit, and he absolutely cherished that. And even to this day, he still has that. So there's been a, armor's been around my life quite a bit. Uh, and like I say, yeah, in the last 4 years it it's really become the main focus. I may build an occasional aircraft kit if I, you know, desire or find the time, but I uh, I'm pretty much all armor at this point.
4: Having that influence from your dad and then passing that on to your son, that's that's super cool. Thanks. TJ,
0: what about you? Okay, I guess I can talk about myself. Yeah, I've I've only been modeling for well, I guess now it's going not nine years since uh, 2012. And I've only been doing real scale models for, I don't know, last six years or so. Really, I started with science fiction and Star Wars, which I still do on occasion. But I would, I would want to say probably three or four years ago, I started building armor. I'm still pretty new to it. I can count all the tanks I've built on one hand. So I'm still trying to figure out what I'm doing. But yeah, I like building tanks. They're fun. and Anyone that's listened to our podcast probably heard me talk about it, but I'm a huge Sherman, Sherman-holic, Sherman I guess.
4: Yes, you are. Yes, you are. <laughs> well, I have a pretty similar path to everybody else. I've been a modeler since I was about uh, seven or eight years old. For the last, I don't know, 15 or 20 years, mostly armor, a little sci-fi here and there, but I just love, uh, love tanks. The last 10 years, and this will kind of lead into where I want to start, our discussion here in a second, but you know, armor modeling has really exploded, uh, both in you know, popularity, but also the offerings, the kits and the products to weather with, and, and everything else. First question I'm going to throw this to you, John, and then everybody just feel free to jump in on this. In a couple of our recent episodes of the podcast, we've been talking about is scale modeling an art and you know, that balance of when you're building a model building a model that's extremely realistic or maybe has some art in it. John, when, when you do your modeling, uh, where do you kind of fall in that spectrum and, and how do you look at the balance between the two?
2: Yeah, you know, that's that's a great question. And, and it seems to be a hot topic in some, uh, in some corners of the Facebook. I certainly think some armor modelers take a very artistic approach. And to be honest, those ones I uh, tend to follow and admire the most. Some examples I would throw out there is Adam Wilder or Meg Jimenez. What they're doing is the Spanish school. And I understand it's not for everyone, but the way that they play with light and different effects, you know, Martin, Martin from Night Shift is, is another prime example and is probably one of the best in terms of explaining it and ex- illustrating it in video form about the artistic nature of armor modeling. And it's, it's using different techniques to present false shadows, to pre- present you know, more wear. You know, as I sit at my bench and I look at a T-34 in front of me, I'm thinking like, man, I really beat this up. But the only way to convey certain effects, I find, is that you have to overdo them. And in that case, it's very artistic. <laughs> Another hot topic for artistic nature of armor modeling is, is Panzer Gray. I like mine a little blue. That is just my personal appeal. I think it brings, you know, it makes the, the vehicle look more alive in a sense. It brings a, a hue to it that is not often seen in photographs because Panzer Gray is very dark. You know, It's just very dark gray. It's almost black in some circumstances. But I think that little blue hue um, and that artistic approach to armor modeling makes some of the most interesting ones. And, and, but I also want to caveat realistic modeling. Uh, in a sense and and how do I describe that in in the best way I can is is Mike Rinaldi. when you look at his work it's it's extremely realistic but I also think with that realistic approach there's an artistic nature in, in it if that makes sense common phrases I hear with art and, and I support it is like you know you don't know what it is but but you know it when you see it and I, I tend to look at armor modelers on the internet and you can tell when they get it and when they take that, you know, artistic nature to a build, it's much more than just, you know, paint, wash, dry brush. It's deliberate effects trying to achieve,
3: you know, a forced perspective. And sometimes it's almost, it's a sort of a hyper-realism thing, right? In, in that it's not, you're not intending to, uh, to, to make something look uh, exactly as it would from, from that distance. Like you said, John, you're trying to accentuate an effect and you you're trying to make somebody feel it and in order to do that you know yeah you have sometimes you have to exaggerate the uh, the, the effect a little bit i mean people talk a lot you know, and have been for decades about scale effect and you know how you do certain things with colors and so on because of that to me you know, thinking of that is you're working with a smaller subject you know a, a small object if you will in front of you on the you know, on the bench on the table under the lights and there's not an there's not the same amount of light hitting that thing as there would be in a one to one scale tank. So you've got to do more with that light in order to get the effect that that you want.
1: Yes, I agree. In my case, I I kind of refer or where I where I want to go is kind of like artistic realism. Mm-hmm. I'll give you an example. Right now, I'm I'm building the T thirty four eighty five from Rightfield Models. Yeah, I could build it out of the box. I could I could mark it out of the box, and that's nice. But for me, I like to look for reference photographs, and then I'll take those reference photographs and decide do I, how much of this do I really want to capture? And I'll give you the example here. I have two photographs of, actually three photographs of tanks, t 3485s in Belgrade and45. In if you look really closely, it's particularly on, on the right-hand side of the left-hand, left-hand side of the tarts, um, you'll see the bulge and you realize it's not the same tart. Short of that though, the vignette that's there, if you look at those, is amazing. And the way they've they've laid out stuff on, I mean, they've got a they've got a 55 gallon drum on the left hand side of the tank in the rear, where you'd ha- normally have the other um, you know, the normal fuel tank. Yeah, the hundred liter tanks. Tied off on the right. And so to me, I'm like, okay, so I've got a T 3485 that's coming out of, I think it's 174. And I'm going. Yeah, you know what? That's great. And if you look really closely, you probably figure out it's not the same tank, it's not the same model. But I really like the way those photographs uh, reference the reality of of the scene. And so that's my that's my goal. I'm going to try to replicate as much as I can and use that to create a piece of work.
3: Mm-hmm. Little modeler's license along the way. Yep. Absolutely. So, are you saying, JC, that
4: you're, you're shooting for realism and you're trying to do it in the most realistic way? Or are you going to deploy art, so to speak, to try and get you to that look that you're
1: aiming for? Like I said, I think I've got either artistic realism or realistic art. I don't know. But basically, I think there's an art to being able to replicate what you see in the photograph from a weathering perspective. Because uh, quite honestly, you look at any piece of armor that that's just rolling down the road out of the factory, it's already picking up dirt dust, et cetera. You put it into a wartime experience and give it you know six months on the road, man, those things get really, really beat up so to me I think it I think the art the art of this is being able to use the materials we have to replicate what that really looked like you know recently. On the, I, I put up a kV1 that I had just struggled to finish, and it's not very well done construction wise in terms of the suspension. But the, on the upper body, if you want to call that artistic, that's fine, but that's the way whitewash wears off a tank. A kV1 and Neil, I'm, I'm, Neil's obviously the, uh, the expert on this, but the heavy, you know the heavy soda on the, on the exhaust, all of that grunge is realistic but it's also artistic to be able to replicate that.
4: That's that's a good point. And, you know, TJ and I were talking about this uh, before the call. John mentioned it with uh, German gray. TJ, what about the use of color as an artistic medium? Do we deploy the color exactly how it looks on the paint chip, or do we alter it? I mean, where, where do you kind of fit in that spectrum?
0: Well, I've kind of like shifted really over the last couple of years. I, I was... I guess as militant as you could get is making sure my color was as accurate as possible. But as I guess I've gotten older, maybe not necessarily wiser, but <laughs> I've, uh, I just don't really care anymore. Like I said, I I'm a big Sherman fan. So obviously I paint a lot of olive drab. I know what olive drab is supposed to look like. It's pretty well documented. Now, now that we have thing you know, access to the internet, it's out there. You know, I know what it's not as well. So, the way I approach it now is trying to find a happy medium between what it actually was and what I actually like to look at. Because at the end of the day, I kinda, I'm kind of i starting to lean more towards the latter and care more about how I think it looks. And, and this kind of got brought up because I'm working on um, a Raphael model Firefly and I went with like a distressed paint look like uh, Martin does on his Night Shift channel. I used AK Real Color SCC15 Olive Drab, which is not correct. It's not a correct color. And that's fine. I used it because I like the color that it is. And I like spraying AK Real Color. That's my favorite paint to work with. And I I posted a, I think it was like a short video clip in Scale Modelers critique group. And someone mentioned like that little, so that was either too light. I think, oh, that's too light for SCC15. like, yeah, I know. And I don't care because it looks good. In the course of the discussion, it was brought up. You know, oh, I bet most people don't paint olive drab. Correct. I've responded that it's also true. Most people don't, myself included, and I know I don't, and and I don't care.
3: But also, I mean, you know, the variations in in you know, OD between you know between factories between you know, in time periods, even in you know in light conditions, you know, cloudy day versus sunny day. You know, you're going to get you know the blue overtones, all of that sort of stuff. I mean, there, there, there's you've got a lot of lot of leeway here. You know, it's not down to you know do we do we actually apply you know, some sort of sophisticated instrumentation to to, to this <laughs> thing? The, I mean, you know, and, and the other side of it to me is that you know, and particularly with things like the, the post war olive drab, which you know was was the the you know, the darker color, but also Panzer gray, and even uh four know, bo green when uh, you know, it was in bright light. You know, I, I've seen. 35th scale and even 72nd scale models painted to something that was really approximating the, you know, the original color on the paint chip. And the model turns into a light sink. It becomes so dark right. that you can't see the detail that the guy has put into the model. And you, your eye just sort of doesn't want to look at it. And it's like, okay, you know, to, to me, that detracts from from the model. Lighten it up a little bit and yeah you, you to to, uh, to tj's point you know, it, it might not be be right but you like to look at it and that's the important thing
4: well and john that ties into german gray right i mean the german gray is very very dark but if you lighten it up and put a touch of blue into it it really makes it much more interesting to look at and then to layer with your modeling your your weather layers
2: yeah i and i i completely agree and i want to go back to what tj said because it really It's kind of how I model now. And what he said really uh, resonates with me is like, when I first came into modeling, you know, the boomerang the last time, I was very focused on, you know, accuracy and color plates and making sure that every detail and clasp on a vehicle was like to spec. Now, you know, I've kind of evolved in a sense that I don't get hung up around those little things. And I am much more goal oriented in finishing the model the way I want to look at it, the way I want to, you know, see it, think about it. I just don't care in a lot of cases. The colors are close enough. And I don't want to, when I say this, I don't want to convey, you know, I I don't like the other aspect. I completely appreciate a modeler who is going to the nth degree to scratch build something uh, that doesn't even exist and and make sure it's down to the millimeter. I, I respect that wholeheartedly. I guess my modeling style has evolved in that sense where it's good enough for me. And I tell you what, when you post things online, 99.9% of the time, no one else notices, you know, those sacrifices, whether it be in detail or kind of paint accuracy, unless you paint, you know, something bright blue, that's panzer gray, and then that triggers (laughs) everyone. But I kind of take TJ's approach now, you know, I I, I like the way certain things look, my olive drabs are certainly lighter than the uh, prototypical, you know, I'm looking at a 4BO vehicle in front of me right now, it's got a little bit cooler of a tone as opposed to more ochre which is maybe a little warmer, which some paints are. So I just wanted to hit on that where I find myself completing more models now when I take that approach as opposed to before when I'm such a stickler around accuracy and even, even construction in that matter. I like to blitz through builds and, and some things you can hide the IPMS just throw a tarp on it if there's a problem. I've done that before. Well <laughs> so I, I guess I'll just close with I, I really like what TJ said there in terms of you know building it how you want it and just just owning it and, and moving on to more projects.
1: I want to just interject something about the Panzergrade discussion. I I've been doing a lot of work with it lately. And I is a challenge that I there's no such thing as a pure black. Absolutely not. Blacks are either, they're, if you, they're tinted either to a, they could be tinted to a red shade, a blue shade, or a gray shade, or a, I'm sorry, a green shade. To prove this out, all you need to do, and I've done this, is take to me is black, flat black, and then start adding white to it, and then spray it. You're going to find that that black has a blue tint to it. Mm-hmm. Take NATO black. Go ahead and add a little white to that and you'll find that's got a greenish tinge to it. So anyone who's going to, i that's where I agree with John on terms of, you know, the blue in Panzer gray. Yeah, I think it's there. And like, like Neil was saying under different lighting conditions that will show up, you know, and there's been so much talked about it. And honestly, to me, if the, I'll give you another anecdote. I had a good friend who just passed away last year. He was 86 years old. And he was a uh, he was born in Germany and he served in the Hitler youth and climbed all over these things. Now you can say, well, is that you know his memory could be, you know, this, that, or the other thing. That's fine. But he was adamant about the fact that there was blue in the panzer gray, and every single panzer that he built had a blue tint to it. Mm-hmm. So I think John's position is not only artistically valid. I think it may have some historical value as well. So, you know, for what it's worth, and, you know, obviously we could go down the panzer gray rat hole forever, but I think this is about, (laughs) this is all I want to talk about it.
4: We do so much weathering and layering on the models is, you know, what the model looks like after you're done airbrushing is not what it's going to look like when it's finished. And so how close do you want to be when you're going to be putting, you know, dark coats and light coats and blending coats on top of that?
3: There are times when I will deliberately you know, over lighten up the uh, the tones you know, on the uh, the initial spraying that I'm doing because I know that you know I'm going to hit it with washes and, and modulation and oh you know, whatever term is the trendy one uh, this week you know it's going to knock that, that tone down and darken it or uh, once the, uh, the the weathering goes on. You know, and again, you don't want to turn the model into a light sink. So sometimes you have to start with a lighter shade than you're aiming for, because you have to think about the future effects that you're about to add. Scott, I'd like to uh to to go back to a point that, that, that John made about you know going and, and being the stickler for you know every detail and, and, and stuff like that. Because I think a lot of us go through that sort of cycle. You know, we start out we learn our ropes. We do our due diligence, and, and you, as they say in surfing, you will learn like a grommet, right? You 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 build kits. You build them badly. You learn how to not, not to get glue all over the thing, and then you, you sort of progress to a point where yeah, now you're going all out. You know you'll take that apron set and you'll use every piece of photo etch on it, and you know you kind of go nuts, and then you sort of you know, the pendulum swings back a bit, and you realize that life's too short to do a lot of that sort of stuff, you know, without driving yourself insane, and you come to a happy medium whereby, yeah, you, know, you do the things that, that matter to you and you learn when to stop.
4: That's a great point. That, you know, that kind of brings me to a question. Aftermarket items on your builds, um, specifically barrels and tracks. TGM, I'm going to start with you on this one. Are they A, unnecessary, are they B, optional, or are they C, mandatory for you on your builds?
0: I'm going to go with uh, D, <laughs> For that depends. It it depends on the kit. Some kits, you know, yeah, you're gonna want a metal barrel because the barrel's trash and the amount of work you have to put into it. In my opinion, it's just not worth it. Unless you're, you know, I don't know, that's your thing. You like sanding barrels.
1: <laughs> I mean, I'm not
0: gonna tell you not to, but me personally, uh, that's a hard pass. I hate it. So wherever I can, it's gonna be a metal barrel some of the newer, you know, kits that come out that have slide molded barrels, they're they're pretty good. It's still relatively new, but like the Tamiya Valentine, the kit barrel for that two pounder is fantastic. And I got a metal barrel and I used it when I built that kit, but I didn't have to. I almost didn't because it was so good. And then tracks. Uh, I mean, for me, that's usually a, a must, especially metal tracks. I don't think I've, well, I did a, 148 scale T55. I use the plastic link in length tracks for that. But other than that, I think every other tank I've built, I put metal tracks on. I don't think I've done one without them. Definitely not going to use rubber bands. I don't care. Even if it's a Sherman, don't put a rubber band on it. They don't sit right on the sprocket, in my opinion.
1: I agree. JC, what about you? Yeah, I, kind of, I kind of follow TJ's thinking on this. I mean, especially with barrels. You know, if you get an old, and I'm a big Tamiya fan, much like you are, Scott. I mean, you get the old Tamiya kits with the two-piece barrels. That's trash. I mean, I don't. Care, I'm not going to spend it, like TJ the amount of time it takes to make those barrels even look close. So those, I would definitely get a metal barrel. The newer stuff, like the Rifle, the field T3485, I'm using the I'm using the kit, the kit barrel. It's fine. It's single piece. It looks great. It's in scale. I built the Tamiya kv one I'm probably going to build another one, and their kit barrel is fine. So as we move forward in time and slide molding comes into play, I'm more likely not to get a metal barrel because I just don't see the point. Once you cover it with paint, you're not getting any kind of you know metallic look to it at all. That's kind of where I stand with the uh, with barrels. On tracks, I'm desperately trying to fall in love with metal tracks. <laughs> <laughs> I've been hot. If there's been one adventure I've been on, it's trying to find, and I've used just about every one of them. You know the the perfect set of tracks, a perfect brand of tracks. fro model probably gets my vote in most cases. Although their their T fifty is a T fifty one Sherman track is just you got to be a masochist to try to deal with that. It's a metal track with like four pieces for each track. That's just crazy. I have used rubber bands way back. I, I'll admit, hands up. I've used rubber bands in the past, <laughs> and if. You know, if they look if they look good and they fit right, okay, that's fine. I don't think I'd use them now because there's other alternatives. I'm not a fan of Lincoln length; they just don't look right. They even when you they they mold the you know the the droop in, it just doesn't work for me. And trying to put those together sometimes can be a real pain in the ass. So I'm looking at now. I may I'm gonna I've tried Master Club in the past, and those tiny little you know bolts just drove me out of my mind. <laughs> I may have to be driven out of my mind some more. I go back to those because I haven't tried our model. That's one thing I haven't tried. So that's something that, you know, that I might, might look at, but I've got model casting, you know, Neil mentioned the AFV club tracks, which are just a night, you know, it's funny. I bought a set of AFV tracks Going, Oh my God, this is great. This is what I was looking for. And then I opened them, look at the instructions. And I was like, Oh, you have got to be an idiot. <laughs> but
2: their Sherman tracks
4: are brutal.
1: They are. Oh my god. Yeah, I particularly the HVSS ones. Yeah.
4: John, where do you come, where do you come down on the uh, barrels and tracks thing? I
2: guess it depends with me as well, and you know, I I think I got to echo both TJ and JC, uh, and I'll use the Ryfield Model T34 example. You know, its barrel is is absolutely perfect. It's slide molded. I have a lot of those 3M sanding sponges. What I'll do is, I'll take the barrel off, I'll do a little exacto scrape on the seam, and then I'll just twist it in my hand for about uh, literally about a minute, and and it's good to go. So, in terms of a a basic barrel, I guess you could say, I'm completely fine with the kit part. When you start to get more complex, you know, whether usually with a muzzle brake or if there's a step in it, like a King Tiger barrel, and there's some detail work, even an Abrams barrel is a good, you know, it's got that worm bore evacuator on it. When you start to get those complexities in on a barrel, it's it's nice to have a turned aluminum barrel. But I will caveat: I'm also a, a frugal modeller, so if I can't make, a, if I if the absolute you know last resort, I'll I'll typically buy a barrel. But I, I've had luck with a lot of kit barrels in terms of tracks. I guess it depends as well. I'm a huge fan of Lincoln Length. I absolutely love them. I'm so happy that kits are coming out with them. I'm looking at the Ryfield model again. Their T-34 is just an ex- excellent example of, of kind of how modeling has evolved in a sense, where they're, I love their Lincoln Link tracks. I think they look good enough for me. I would love to put a set of R model or Fruels on them. But again, I look at the cost. Gosh, Fruel models, they're like 50 bucks these days. And, and by the way, spoiler alert, uh, I saw the announcement from Andy's Hobby headquarters that Fruel model is going to cease Selling tracks to distributors right now. So not sure about the future of that brand. But you know, there's alternatives. Master Club is one, you know, TJ's work on his on his Firefly tracks are absolutely gorgeous and makes me want to buy them. There's our model. I've used some of their sets, to be honest. I don't think that they lack a little crispness in comparison to Fool. But in terms of ease of assembly, they're bar none the easiest. I've done sets within 30 to 45 minutes sitting in front of the television, especially when they have the brass pins. If you buy the sets that have the brass pins, probably equivalent to a full model set, 40, 50 bucks. You can get them directly from China on eBay. I haven't seen any type of hobby shop carry them. If you use the wire ones, that's fine too. What's nice is the molds are new. I've struggled with frule lately because I had a lot of old sets of frule and they would go together very well. I bought some new sets of frule and it's an absolute nightmare. I think I have more drill bits stuck in my finger than, than I do any
3: of the It's just
2: crazy you know, to think about drilling through a thousand tracks or some godforsaken number. So I've really gone away from frules. To be honest, I had them for Panzer IV. I started assembling them and I had to drill every one. And I got through about seven links. I boxed them up. I threw them on Facebook, sold them, and then I bought a set of our model from eBay and had change to spare. One last comment about tracks. You know, I I love the injection molded ones as well. In fact, I just bought six sets last night off of Squadron. They have a fire sale, 70% off, RIP, I think, soon for them. But I got three sets of the Panzer IV for like six bucks a piece. I got the Ryfield model panther ones that are one piece you know essentially with the pins you just got to put on each end for like six bucks so i i love track i love um you know injection molded stuff as well and i have a bunch of model castings so in short going back i i take the jc and tj approach where i open a kit
4: evaluate
2: it and then at that point i either go on ebay or stick with what i got in
4: the box Neil, where do you come down on this
3: well i think you probably you know very similar to uh the the other gentleman here i have you know, older kits uh yeah I, I mean definitely replaced with with a barrel you know a bearer my kind of favorite for uh for, for that sort of thing but yeah, you know, the newer kits yeah i mean you know i've, I've built a um just recently a take-home uh Tiger. i've built one or two of their panthers you know i built afv club centurion they yeah, the kit barrels are wonderful. There's, there's no reason to, uh, to, to, to go away from them. Crazily enough, you know, sometimes you have to uh, use the kit barrel because there's no alternative. Before we started the recording here, I was talking about the, uh, the Airfix 132nd sale, uh, Crusader. You know, there's, there's nothing around apart from the, uh, the, the kit barrel for that. Which you know, took a little bit of work, but hey, you know, came up not not too badly. You know, for a nearly half century year old kit, that's a pretty darn good good kit. In in terms of uh, of tracks, Master Club are you know, kind of like my new love. I know people go, oh my god, you know, what about the uh, the little tiny resin pins? I don't have a problem with the little tiny resin pins. I think you know I've got a I've got a good pair of tweezers with a with a a, a flat back to the uh, the jaw, and yeah, I get them. I put. Put the things in. I use the flat flat section to push them in, and they go together uh, very very well. Occasionally, you have to drill out a little bit of flash, but for the most part, they're 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 pretty good. I will use them for uh, pretty much any of the Russian stuff I do. Uh, most of the German stuff that uh, that I do as well. I don't mind the uh, the Lincoln length tracks. Some of the um, the trumpeter kits that I've built, the uh, the KV ones, I've used. They're Lincoln length. It's not bad, but you know the metal tracks certainly improve. And I don't know whether it's just me; it's probably not. But I always seem to get that when you're assembling the Lincoln length and you wrap everything around, and you get to the 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 last link, there's a half a link space. Exactly. (laughs) You're not the only one.
4: It's a, and it's a Russian tank that has a two-piece track.
3: <laughs> yeah, if you're doing that with with T 34s it's just like ah shoot. <laughs> you can kind of get away with it. With, well, well, you know the the early KV uh, track is is you know, less of a problem because it has the tooth on it, on every link. If you're dealing with the ones that have the uh, the alternate uh, teeth, yeah, you know that's that, that that becomes even more of a problem. Certainly, uh, having the, um, the 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 metal tracks tends to, uh, to to get you away from that kind of purgatory.
4: I generally use metal tracks if I can. I like uh, besides the aesthetic of the metal track, I really like how robust they are, and I also like prefer the weathering of a metal track to the weathering of a plastic track. I've found for myself that the, you know, the preparation of the metal track, getting it clean and completely free from the oil from your fingers and and those kind of things Makes them a, a real treat to weather. How do you guys feel about weathering uh, the metal track versus plastic?
3: I don't really have a problem with them either way. Um, for, in terms of painting and, and and weathering, I I think both tend, you know, the, particularly the, the the newer tracks. I think they you know they tend to go go together pretty well, clean up pretty well. I, I tend to like to get up nose to nose with the thing and go, yeah, you know what? If I can see that the uh, the, the mold seam that runs across the center of the track pin head. Probably a judge is going to be able to see that in a competition, so you know, I I, I will go in there with the uh, the blade and make sure I scrape them all off. But you know, that sort of adds to the tedium. But in terms of painting and weathering, I I, I find plastic or metal to be pretty much equally good to work with.
2: I will probably uh, take a different approach. I I would say I love weathering, you know, full model, our model. Much I find it much more easier than plastic only because you know I really enjoy burnishing them you know burnishing I don't use as a color essentially I use it more as a texture a base yeah yeah so I see a lot of people you know use the burnishing as a base color and I wish I could do that but I swear I always have you know those air bubbles where there's bright bright white metal showing through and I've never I've tried every trick in the book and I just can never get them you know completely covered with burnishing fluid so I, you know, I burnish them and then I have like a, a honestly a 50, 50 red, brown, black mix to me, a flat, a blast them in, uh, let that dry. And then I just slather pigments all over them. I actually have a box dedicated to weathering tracks because it's just a disaster. It gets everywhere. <laughs> and then, you know, once that dries, you know, you take your sanding stick, you can swipe and, you know, uh, hit those high points on, on the. Track and expose that white metal, and then you can do speckling and you know other you know other techniques with with enamel. Where I think sometimes I get scared with individual tracks because I've heard horror stories where an enamel thinner will make them brittle, uh, especially at those pin joints, and they'll just crumple and fall apart. I've heard Broncos Panther tracks and some of their plastics are susceptible to that. I think Martin had a problem with that when he was building his you know super heavy Japanese tank where the. Uh, the enamel crazed and cracked the hull of the vehicle um so i i think that uh you know i i always get freaked out about that but i find uh, metal tracks much much easier
4: yeah the sanding that you brought up is my favorite part i mean when you're cleaning the the cleats and the teeth on the track yeah you know, there's nothing that looks like metal like metal exactly. and so uh, that's the advantage i think Yeah you I... make
3: a good point with with that in, in that you can yeah, you can you can rub it back and and weather it exactly as the real track is 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 weathered. So there is that advantage for sure. Yeah, I would
1: I'd agree with John on this because I find that with metal tracks, once you do you know once you put them in the solution, you take them out, you're all you're like you're like halfway there, you know, and then it becomes a matter of maybe some a little bit of rust wash or maybe it's you know a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I'll I'll use a fiberglass pen along the track itself if I want to you know. Brighten it up, but it just seems to be easier. I mean, you can make the plastic tracks look great. It's just that you're going to take more time getting there, I think. Ah, that was awesome, you guys. Great discussion. My next question
4: is about armor modeling in general. And my perception is that, you know, when I started kind of what I'll call serious modeling, probably about 20, 25 years ago, the most popular kind of modeling was at least here in the US was aircraft modeling but i definitely see a trend over the last say 10 years where i think armor modeling has really become the largest genre it seems like if you look at number of kits that armor modeling is really the the driving force for quote unquote traditional subjects excluding you know some you know the big trend in science fiction and those kind of things interested in your take on that and then maybe why you guys think that armor modeling has increased in popularity so much over the last 10 years uh tj why don't you start us
0: well you know i know we were talking about that before um we started recording but uh, you know i don't know because I, I don't know if there's more armor kits now because it's popular or it's popular because there's more armor kits available you, you know what i mean we're like Which one came first? I mean, I don't really know because I haven't been doing it that long. So I'm not really the best, yeah, I don't know, observer of it. But yeah, but I will say I have noticed that it's like every book that AK or MIG is putting out, most of them are about armor modeling in some way, at least the ones that I've seen. And I don't know if that's because my intake of scale modeling is a little more filtered, you know, through social media, because that's pretty much where I get all my uh, armor modeling stuff from and just pretty much a you know, handful of groups. And I am in a lot of armor modeling groups that focus just on armor modeling. So, I, you know, I'm probably not the best to speak to that. But, yeah, I don't know. That's a good that's a really good question.
4: Neil, what do you think?
3: Um Again, I'm I'm not necessarily sure whether you know, there there are whether armor is the, the the dominant genre because like TJ, you know, I I see predominantly armor stuff. I mean, I do see a little bit of aircraft things. You know, I belong to some general purpose modeling groups online. Uh, you know, I see a lot of uh, of sci-fi stuff as well. But it's kind of like you don't know what you don't know. So you know, there could be you know, lots and lots of things out there that that I I, I rarely see, but certainly. The, the, the volume of releases that, that we're seeing coming out and, and, you know, even new startup companies popping up, you know, I, I think generally speaking, you know, this is a very good time to be a modeler. Modeling in general is is certainly booming a, a, as a hobby. And I think, you know, part of that may be because, you know, certainly it, it, it shows. You get to meet a lot of people who were the you know the Desert Storm and the Operation Iraqi Freedom vets and so on, and they're modeling what they they served on, and they're getting you know, a little older now to the point where yeah you know they they they're, they're sort of settled in their lives and they want to get you know, in, into uh, into a hobby and yeah they're 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 going back to uh, you know it's it's kind of like you know living your own glory days I guess to a certain extent. You know, we 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 see a lot of folks building modern stuff more than when I first started. It was all World War II, and you know there was a few post-war stuff that you, that you'd see on tables at shows. Now you know the, the the modern genres or modern periods, let's say, are, uh, are are really booming, and and I think that's because of a lot of people coming into the hobby who are you know veterans in their thirties and forties, kind of thing. You know the, the younger guys compared to me. <laughs>
1: JC, <laughs> what do you think? You know, I I, I kind of I, I can see Neil's point. I think he's right. I think some of the you know, I don't think that armor right now is is more popular than aircraft. I, I I think aircraft still probably sells more kits than armor does. However, I think if you if we had any kind of sales numbers, I would predict that over the last five to ten years, armor modeling has grown significantly, and I think the reason for that. Outside of the historical aspects, which I think are true, that you've got all these veterans that have come back and we've had publications on you know, Desert Storm, OEF, OIF, all of, the, all of these campaigns, which you know, drives interest. We've also had, think of, think of the, the companies that have opened up in the last five years. Rifle Model, Border, Amusing, May, let's say before 2010 even, all you had to choose from was Tamiya and Trumpeter and Dragon. And we all know what the dragon experience is like. I'll never forget when I came back into modeling and wanted to do armor back in, I think it was 95 or 96. I go into a local hobby shop and the first kit and this guy walks me over and says, hey, oh, well, these are all the armor kits. And the first kit that I, I bought and brought, brought home was a Dragon Panzer IV Eve with, that had a thousand parts. I thought I was going to die. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about overwhelming. A uh, bad place to start, but yeah, I think there's been an incredible increase in in popularity, and I think that's that's probably reflected in all these companies that have opened up uh, to support strictly armor armor kits. And look at things like you know Abrams, you know a, uh, was it Abrams Squad Magazine opened up, tremendously popular. A lot of your modern subjects, I think, are getting a lot more attention. So I think it's grown definitely even looking at some of the folks that come into SMCG now that you're seeing, I'm seeing more, you know, kind of a steady stream of armor guys to coming in. So yeah, I think it's grown in popularity most definitely. And you can see that from the number of companies that have, that have opened up and some of the magazines that support them. So, yeah.
3: I think there are also uh, new markets opening up as well. Like traditionally it was kind of like, you know, Europe and, the United States were the, the the places where where models were sold, but you know I I know an increasing number of people in places like China and India who are building avidly. A friend of mine was talking to some folks in uh, in, in, in a model club in Shanghai, and he said you know they get over a hundred people at their monthly meetings, and we were like, wow, there's also you know a much larger market uh, on, on that side of the world now for uh, for. For models, both armor and otherwise, and I think that's another reason why we're seeing a lot of these these companies popping up, because you know there's there's more money to be made now in in, in this space.
4: What about the role of World of Tanks and War Thunder and games like that?
3: Oh, huge! I went across to uh, to Bovington in 2016 for the hundredth anniversary of the tank for Tank Fest. Right there was this massive display. They had people you know doing World of Tanks. Seminars. uh, They had the uh, uh, about thirty stations you set up there for uh, for people to uh, to uh, actually play the game. They uh, they sponsored opening and staffing the conservation center so everybody could go in and look at all the stuff that wasn't on display. You know, now you think about things like Chieftain's Hatch. Think about all the all the stuff that they're doing online to actually promote the the real world aspects of it. You know, versus the uh, the gaming aspects. You know, Hillary Doyle's got real involved with them uh, recently uh, you know, with helping out with some of the historical stuff. And there are subjects that we have seen in plastic that I never expected to see based upon the popularity of World of Tanks. People have started to, uh, to or your companies have started to, uh, to to issue kits.
4: Yeah, like we have not one, but two new FCM 36 tanks. Yeah. See, I don't think there's any right. way that happens without <laughs> those video games.
3: I mean the the object seven hundred four the um, one fifty two millimeter uh, on the SPG on the IS three chassis. Only built one, and and you know Trumpeter came out with a kit of it. Woohoo! <laughs> you know?
4: yeah. And Dragon has another version with a different gun that's only available in the game. I think.
3: Yes, you know, in in some cases we had seen that kind of like oh yeah we're you know rather than re- release the quote unquote real one you know we're going to release the game version, but they usually release both as options. So. You, know, you've, you you you'll have your two guns in the in the in the kit. Hey, look, you know, if I have to do a little bit of of messing around to make the thing into the the prototypical version, I'm happy to do that rather than have to start with some crappy 80s piece of resin that will challenge what's left of my sanity. <laughs>
4: John, I I know you've got a take on this. What do you think about uh armor modeling's popularity and maybe some of the correlating causes? Yeah, you know,
2: I I think and maybe I'm going to take a different approach and talk about maybe my evidence is based on you know, my attendance at shows. I've been very fortunate to be going to model shows for a very, very long time and see for the kind of evolution of what topics are hot and what topics are not. Growing up and even into the early 2000s, when you go to an IPMS show, You know, there's a reason they called it the International Plane Modeling Society, because there's aircraft, (laughs) hundreds of them scattered all over the table, and the armor categories were, you know, not very well representative. And you have organizations like AMPS popping up, you know, back in the 90s, you know, to cater to that demographic. But as you look, and and I, I wish I could get, you know, there's data out there to prove it kind of see how those categories have swung in terms of armor. And you can even look at amps and the registrations going up recently. But I think if you could point to some some key catalysts on why armor modeling has evolved and become extremely popular, I'm going to say that one of the figures that I have admired and really, I believe, changed the game for armor modeling is Miguel Jimenez. I mean, it all goes back, I believe, to the early 2000s when MIG Productions came about When the Spanish school and that type of publishing was starting to get out into the in the modeling community, I think it really influenced a lot of people and gained a lot of popularity in the armor modeling crowd. You know, when you look back at his Frequently Asked Questions book, completely changed armor modeling and and really was a catalyst that I don't think air aircraft modeling had. You know, we went from wash, dry brush, basic paint to bringing in techniques that were like just crazy and. From the early 2000s to now, I think there's just been an explosion in armor modeling. And when you look at some of the most popular videos on YouTube, a lot of them surround armor modeling. I mean, Martin's channel is a perfect example. He's, he's, I keep mentioning him because he just shows what can be possible with armor modeling and the expression, the weathering, all of that. And people love it. And I think that has made it popular. There's so many different camouflage schemes, so many different subjects. And aircraft, I'm, I, may offend, I may offend some people. Sometimes they're just dull to me. <laughs> Silver or ghost gray. I'm sorry. Ooh, shots fired. I mean, I have a, I have a degree <laughs> in aerospace engineering. I've been in the aerospace industry my whole career. I have plenty of pilot friends. But, man, they, they just don't sing to me like an armor model. And, you know, yes, I know in warfare, tanks are probably the first to die. But they're still really cool to build.
4: No, but I I think you make a great point, John, because when you're building an aircraft, let's take a look at this. You've got to spend a lot of time on things like filling seams, rescribing panel lines, aligning flight surfaces, aligning landing gear. Whereas on armor, I think the focus is sort of more on the weathering and the aging of something, you know, the finish of the model. And ultimately, it's the finish of your model that makes that model John's and nobody else's, right? Exactly.
2: Yeah, that's, that's a great point. You know, I, I think go to a show and you bring up, this is actually a fantastic point, Scott, and it really just didn't hit me till now. Go to a show and look at a, you know, look at a table full of aircraft. They kind of all blend into me, you know, blend together for me. You know, a green is a green is a green. When you go to the armor modeling table and you, and you start to look at them, there's... Very, you know, subtle nuances to completely different styles, and I find that those, you know, how can I say this? Those big changes in style occur most in the armor modeling category. You know, you have your traditionalists, which there's nothing wrong with that. You know, with the very well executed models that look factory fresh are appealing to me as well. But you know, you can go from that to something heavily weathered, and and both are believable, and both and both can you know sit on the table and, and be really well respected in their own right. Where I think on the aircraft side, I tend to think of aircraft as always clean, with exception to several you know, fantastic modelers, you know Daniel Zemabard from Spain and, and a few other aircraft, Steve Hustad, and a few more from the States. But typically, yeah, but... they kind of all blend together for me. And maybe, maybe that's just my biased nature. When I go to a show, I like the sci-fi table, the diorama table, and the armor table.
3: When you do see a well weathered aircraft model, though, it does really pop. I mean, I I've seen some really great U.S. naval aircraft done because you know those things. You actually stand on the island of a carrier and you look down and you look at the tops of you know F-14s and F-18s. They are beat up. Oh yeah. And watching that in in, you know done well in uh, in in a model, I think is you know is amazing. And you know some of the things you see with the Japanese World War II stuff where. You know they've been sitting out in the in the sun on some Pacific island. And the green's flaking to uh, to aluminum underneath. And again, the guys who who can do that well, it's like wow. You know that's that's a really great effect to do. You know without making it look ham fisted. Yeah. You know to to your point, I think yeah most aircraft yeah people tend to build them clean, but when they don't, to me you know, that's that's the ones that really leap out at you. Oh, I completely agree. And
2: you know maybe. Maybe, again, another biased comment, but I think armor modeling and the, you know, the, the extreme weathering, the different styles has has been a benefit to the aircraft modelers where they can, you know, adapt them, evolve them to aircraft model.
4: Think about, you know, you've got a Spitfire Mark II that you're modeling from the Battle of Britain and, uh, you know, a lot of those operated off of grass fields. Mm-hmm. So how do you do the appropriate amount of weathering on that? to actually represent an aircraft in that scheme and, and still make it, you know, look like it's well cared for, but also make it look realistic in the environment you're portraying.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because those grass fields were, were muddy grass fields as well. Remember, it's the UK.
1: <laughs> Point that I wanted to make was kind of follows on what John was talking about regarding MiG and AK. They, they brought the Spanish style to armor building and gave us products that we could make the equipment more quote unquote realistic in more time conditions. I also think that because they brought those products on board that that also had an impact on aircraft modeling. Because you look at some of Doug's kits that he's built, okay? He's weathered those amazingly well and he's using some of the products that Mig or AK's developed. So if you, didn't have an, if you didn't have an ammo and you didn't have an AK, you probably would still be looking at pretty much, you know, factory fresh aircraft.
2: You bring up a good point, J.C., and I, I got to comment on this. You know, when Mick Productions first brought out their bottled washes and their SIN filters, I was a kind of a naysayer, to be honest. You know, I saw them as a kind of cliche, gimmicky product. And I remember telling my friend I'm like, man I, I don't know if I can ever use something like that I got my oils I'm good Holy crap, you know seventy bottles later I my work <laughs> every day where I, I understand there's there's a type of armor modeler and modelers in general that want to use you know they can use traditional products you know oil paints uh, pastels, and that's fine but what I think ammo mig and you know a k all of those companies have done have made achieving those finishes easier by offering these products. Yes, they are a level of convenience, but they're also a persistent, consistent type of uh, product as well. I know when I open that bottle of wash, what type of effects it's going to give me, but I can also use that wash to deliver different kinds of effects, whether it's speckling or, you know, fading, you know, thin it a little bit and give it a filter. But, you know, JC, I I just want to accentuate the point you made that those products, I think, have really influenced not only armor style, but, you know, advancing a lot of, you know, a lot of capabilities or what am I looking for here? You know, the technique of a lot of modelers, it's, it's brought them and has allowed them to learn at an accelerated pace. Otherwise, you know, they would have to kind of mix some things on their own, look at a color wheel. But now it's, it's kind of at their fingertips and readily available.
3: A lot of people are 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 wary of you know getting into that whole level of you know sort of your art education, where yeah you know I've got to figure out how to blend you know seven different oils to to get to get that effect, or I can reach for the jar on the shelf and I can get it. It's a it's an enabler. It's kind of democratized that level of finish and, and style and made it kind of available to people rather than just you know a, a few who happen to be you know trained graphic artists kind of thing.
4: Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, it's interesting when we were speaking with Martin when he was on our show. He brought up the fact that um, he feels like from the uh, the feedback that he received that a lot of people that watch his night shift videos aren't modelers at all. They just tune in to see what he does and enjoy the videos. Maybe from sort of to go back to where this conversation all started, kind of an artistic point of
3: view. It's funny. We, we actually uh, our our local club goes to, uh, to the, the, the local uh, 4-H fair uh, here in, uh, in Morris County in New Jersey. And it, it's it, it, interesting to that point, the number of people we get coming by and just watching stuff that, that, that we're doing. Most of the time, guys build things. A couple of years ago, I took a, um, a diorama building setting and I, you, it, I started out with it on the first day of the, uh, the fair. You're just in flat black. And people were coming back over and over again to see what, what was going on and, you know, was building up the, uh, the various layers of the uh, painting, this uh, this diorama base. Yeah, I mean, you, probably 99 out of 100 were, were not modelers and had no uh, interest in it. But at the same time, they were like, wow, that's really artistic. You know, we, we, we like seeing what you're doing. We've actually gotten a, a bunch of members for our club, though, as, as a result of that. People who have uh, you know, either come to the show or gone, hey, you know, my brother-in-law, cousin, whatever, um, you know, is, is into this sort of stuff. You know, can I get uh, the contact details? And our, the club's expanded quite a bit.
4: John, question for you. Your favorite armor kit in the last Five years. Oh
3: boy,
2: I knew you were going to ask that. And I <laughs> I was like thinking, I'm looking over my, my case here and, and I'm looking at which one I enjoyed the most. And <sighs> great question. I would have to point to the Tamiya Brumbar. I say it because, you know, standard Tamiya, but it, it was just certainly such a joy to build. No issues, a unique subject. I mean, it's a box on wheels essentially. So it's pretty hideous, but it, it was just simply a joy to build and no hiccups, totally fun. And yeah, I, I would say that's that's the most fun I've had in a while. And, and certainly too, the finishing of it, putting you know a weird dot scheme on it and, and making it dirty and muddy like it was in the Ardennes. So I, I will say to me, a Brumbar.
4: That's a great choice. This is such a beautiful model you did. JC, same question.
1: Boy, I'm glad I came second on this. Uh, That's a tough one. There's two that come to mind. One is to me is Stewart, the newer Stewart, the M3. That was a total joy to build and fun to weather and give it that dusty, uh, dusty desert look. That was amazing. I I would also add throw in there to me is Tiger One early production that I built probably three years ago now. I did a lot of research on that particular kit. And I found the one that attracted me. There was a. These were the tigers that were sent to Kharkov and given some. We went to these were the ones I did went to Grand station. I did the you know I did all of the the research on it and I was able to weather it properly and I got to use precision ice and snow on the surface to create some snow and ice and I just think that that particular kit was easy to build. I didn't have to deal with Zimmerit and it it kind of was a a. An inflection point for my building. My building went a little higher at that point. I think I got a little better with that. So I say that kit and the Stewart. And honestly, the KB1 that I just built. It, you know, if I didn't run into the problem that I with Lincoln length and I had to chop all the wheels off and re-pin them all. To me, has done an amazing job with that kit. I mean, I've never seen so many keyed positions that make it almost foolproof to put you know piece one to piece two. So yeah, that those are. I would say the, the two I mentioned, and I'd say the latest KV-1 has a lot of potential, too. TJ?
0: Oh, man. Like I said, I don't, I haven't built, I like to fancy myself an armor modeler, but I really haven't built a whole lot. I was actually just going back and looking at what I've done, because I couldn't really remember. And I've built six tanks in three years, so, that I've finished. I've built more. <sighs> man, that's tough. Uh, I will say, I've built the Tamiya KV-1, and it's awesome. I think I built it like in two days. I mean, I flew through it, and um, it looks great. Yeah, I don't know i I really like the Tamiya Easy Eight Sherman. That kit is just awesome. That's another one. It literally fell together. Is detailed enough to look really good, but then still give you room to increase, you know, the level of detail on it. If I had to pick, that's been my favorite one that I've built for a couple of reasons. But yeah, I
3: guess I'll go with that one.
4: It's a good choice. Neil, what about you?
3: Well, my my favorite in the last few years it has to be the Tacom Burger Panther G. I just had a ball building that that kit. I did it as uh well, one of the options out of the box was the uh the vehicle from uh Panzerjager Panzer 512. On unit. There's video and a lot of pictures of them in the, uh, the, the first company and the, the, uh, the headquarters company surrendering to the, uh, the U.S. Army in Iserlong in Germany. And you see the, uh, a bunch of vehicles in, in the, in the single core video coming down the, uh, the street towards the square. That's the vehicle that that, that I built. The, the kit was an absolute joy. I think the only thing I did on it was I added some Master Club tracks because I'd already built one TACOM Burger Panther. I built their D, and while the tracks weren't bad, they were you know not as good as the metal ones. So, uh, so I did that. But that that one has to be my uh, my all time favorite. While we're on the subject of the, uh, the new Tamiya KV-1, uh, yeah, joy to build. There are a few issues with the, uh, the kit, though. Scott, you and I talked about this uh, a little while ago. The idlers are way too small, and, and that's probably the, the only actual, well, it's the only error with the kit. What they, they did with that kit is they put a spring, early summer hull uh, together with a late fall, early winter uh, 1941 turret, so they don't exactly match up. So I'm actually in the process, I've got that kid on the bench at the moment, so I, I'm kind of post-dating uh, various features of the uh, the hull uh, and replacing the idlers with uh, with, with trumpeter ones to, uh, to, to kind of match it up for the vehicle that's on the box art.
4: That's good information. I look forward to seeing that.
3: That was just me being the KV geek there. <laughs> no, that's that's
4: totally awesome. I'm going to go with a, an unusual one. It's a Tamiya kit, which isn't unusual for me, but it's the Samoa S35. And, you know, the kit actually had a few issues and a couple of really, really bad engineering choices that are atypical Tamiya. But overall, it was a Tamiya kit. It was fun to build. And I just love that tank so much that I just like you uh, you guys said on your summaries I had a blast building it and I did mine as a repatriated tank that was um in North Africa it was taken over by the Vichy French and then towards the end of the conflict it uh, became an allied tank again so had kind of a, a a spotted history so that was that was a lot of fun Well next question I'm going to open it up a little bit more And I'm going to ask each of you if there is a specific armor kit that uh, either they don't make or they make a lousy version of that you'd like, or a particular aftermarket item or something like that that you wish that we had. John, I'll start with you.
2: Oh man, I'm going to give you the lamest answer in the world. (laughs) I honestly am completely satisfied. I swear to you, we have we live in the golden age of modeling. And when I think of a kit that needs to be produced, they come out with like two of them within the next six months. So I, I am just floored at the number of kits that are coming out, the subject matter that's coming out, the quality of kits that are coming out. It's just simply fantastic. If I did have to pick one, I'll pick a German vehicle and it's about as ugly as they come. It's a super unique, like Panzer Mark III kind of mind- Vehicle, it's got this chassis that's been lifted like it's you know out of you know it's go it needs to be rolling on dubs because it's sitting so high. But it, it's such a unique vehicle. I don't know the name of it off the top of my head. But, you know, probably Neil does because he's a he's an armor expert.
3: I, I can visualize it in my head. I know the one you're talking about, but I can't remember the name of it. But, yeah, it's certainly like you said, you know, it's all like raised up. It's the pimp my Panzer. Yeah, kind of exactly. Th- look, right? Exactly. So I think I think when I look at subject matter, maybe that's a unique
2: piece. But otherwise, I, I have just been floored by the the, the stuff that's coming out. I mean, to, in an example is, you know, uh, Border Models is coming out with a new mobile wagon. I mean, it's, it's really crazy. So I, I just, I'm just along for the ride. So I, I, I'm, yeah, again, lame answer. I know.
4: I'm sorry. <laughs> it's, all, it's all right.
3: <laughs> Neil, what about you? Well, I'm going to give you an answer way out of left field. The one that I would really like to see is an Australian M1A1 Abrams. That's a good call. Because, um, you know, it's, it's a combination of uh, M1A1 and M1A2 features, plus some unique kind of, uh, you know, Aussie things. Like uh, they have a fridge on the bustle rack, which is, you know, very Australian because you've got to carry your beer. <laughs> but, you know, th- those sorts of things. Now, there, there, there were a couple of aftermarket sets that, that were out, both of which are you know, like hen's teeth now to try to find. You know, I, I, I have, uh, I think it's the, one of the Ryfield models kits that everybody said, oh, that's the closest to it, but you need to do some additional things. So if somebody was to come out with, a, with an Aussie version, you know, just one of the initial kits with another sprue, please, please, that, w- that would make my day. Because, you know, one of the few post-war things I, I, I do is, uh, is Australian stuff. JC? I
1: would hand over my wallet for a decent Cromwell. The only Cromwell we have available is to me, is which is not bad, don't get me wrong, but it's old and long in the tooth, but I'd like to see a new Cromwell. I'll second that.
3: You yeah, have a third that. Airfix is supposed to be bringing one out, but it hasn't arrived yet. Yeah, thank you. Uh, that's great. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> so much enthusiasm. <laughs> Yeah. Sounds
4: like you're not much of an airfix <laughs> armor guy.
1: I would say I'm not much of an airfix guy, no.
3: Uh, now all the, all the Brits are going to hate you now. <laughs> yeah, I know.
1: <laughs> they already do, probably. It's okay. For God's sakes, I'm talking about a really good Cromwell. Um, and along those lines, I'd like to see a really nice Comet come out as well. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, it'd be um, nice. Yeah. two for sure.
1: Weapon, and I'm speaking this now because I'm going to try to speak it into existence. Borders come out with – they're producing a Crusader, which is, well, you know, very overdue. Um, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I absolutely agree.
3: I'm hoping they come out with a, with a Mark I or a Mark II as well because, you know, the, yeah. while I like the three, I think the, uh, the one and the two are, are, are weirder looking with that little turret.
1: They
4: are, yeah. yeah. that big machine turret is super cool.
1: And then they've got – I think they've got an anti-aircraft version too that I think to me it did yep. in 148.
3: Yeah, and Italy did one of the two versions of that. Well, actually, there were three and the aircraft variants on the on the Crusader. Italy did one of them, but the uh, you know it would be really nice to see a a, a modern state of the art version.
4: Mm. That's a good choice, JC. It sounds like you're a fellow uh, cruiser tank fan, and that's that's pretty cool.
3: I want to I want to do a Cromwell because in Korea there was one Cromwell that was passed around like a joint at a Willie Nelson concert. This thing, <laughs> yes, it, was. It, it, it it was uh, it, it was uh, from the recce troop of the headquarters company of Eighth Kings Royal Irish Hussars. It was captured at the Battle of Happy Valley by the North Koreans. It was used by them for a bit. Then the South Koreans captured it and they used it, and then eventually handed it back to uh, to the Brits. So this thing went all around the circles. I've got photos of it with um, with a North Korean crew, that's still with the British markings on it. I've got photos of it in South Korean uh, service with the uh, the South Korean Marine markings on it. So you know, it would be just a really cool vehicle to uh, to, to build.
4: Join at a Willie Nelson concert—that is good <laughs> stuff.
0: TJ, what about you? <laughs> I'm I, okay. I'm kind of a, of two minds with this. I agree with John. Where I mean, almost anything you want is is out there, and I'm very happy with with what's available because it it fits my interest except so my caveat would be it's not even i guess technically a tank well i guess it is it's the tank i want a 135th scale little willy why no one's made that yet i I don't know because there's lots of world war one tanks available it to me it would make sense to make little willy i mean it's the the tank it's it, the tank that birthed all other
3: tanks, and he's right there. Yeah,
0: and it, it exists, so you can go measure it.
3: It's on. It, it's it's spinning on a car turntable in the in the hole of tanks in Bovington.
0: And you know, would it be simple? Yeah, because there's not a whole lot to it. I mean, it didn't even have guns. But yeah, I would love to because I am a big World War One tank. Fan. I mean, I'm interested in World War One in general, but I specifically like World War One armor, and I. Done quite a, not quite a few, but I've done a couple, and yeah, I would love to add a little Willie to my collection. And at the same time, there's another, again, not actually a tank, it's a self-propelled gun, but the Gun Carrier Mark One from World War One, which is the first self-propelled mm-hmm. gun. It's so cool looking, with the got like a I think a six-inch howitzer on it or something, just you know something ridiculous it's really cool I would love to see a kid of that that one probably won't happen I, I would see a little willy happening at some time and I I would have thought they would have already done that with the centennial passing but well,
2: I guess a girl can dream is the whippet based off of it <laughs> because there's a lot of good whippets out there right
0: well kind of okay. because pretty much every British tank is based more or less off little willy like you can see the resemblance in, in everything. But yeah, especially with the Whippet, with the, the tracks, very much so. Uh, but there's, it, uh, yeah. A lot of hacking would be required. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess it could theoretically be done, but but there are. I mean, I've, I've built the TACOM Whippet, and I loved it. That was actually the first tank I ever built, and I have the Mang Whippet that I've not built yet that I want to build because I've heard it's really good, except for the tracks. I've heard the Mang tracks aren't that great.
4: Well, you guys talked about the new Crusader which I have two on order, so I'm super happy about that and I'll I'll echo what Neil said. Hopefully we'll get a a Mark 1 or a Mark 2 earlier version of that. So in 135th scale, I'm just keep hoping that uh, Art in particular, but somebody will do some actually accurate T34 76 tanks. Each of the Dragon kits sort of had good parts about them, but they also all had, you know, flaws. So it'd be really, really nice to see a number of those kitted and kitted correctly. And then in one sixteenth scale, I just I keep scratching my head as to why nobody has done a Willie's Jeep in that scale. And then how cool would it be to get some one sixteenth scale motorcycles, a Harley Davidson, an Indian, you know, some of the some of the German bikes as well. That'd be really awesome.
3: I'd like to make one comment, and this goes back to John's point way back at the start about, you know, friends made through modeling. Because when I, when I came to the Northeast US, you know, I moved up here from Sydney, Australia. I knew nobody. A little while after I got here, you know, I bumped into a good friend of mine whose family has since kind of adopted me. And uh, hi, George, you know who you are. I think now probably three quarters of my, you know, what I'll call real world friends started through modeling contacts. You know, and and uh, you know, it's not just due to people here in the, uh, the the Northeast U.S., but you know, I got I got like you know, real friends all over the world that, that have. have come about since, uh, since, since I you know, got involved in, in this hobby. Uh, just be interested in you know, other people's opinions. I mean, you know, John, you said kind of the same thing. You know, what do the others think?
4: I, I don't think there's any question that this hobby community that we're in, especially with the advent of social media, really facilitates relationships and friendships. Uh, TJ and I um, have been friends for several years. We've never met each other in person. And the first time we actually talked on the phone was when my crazy ass called him and said, Hey man, let's make a podcast. So I would, I would agree with that. And, you know, getting to know, you know, John and, and JC and Neil, now you, I mean, it's, it's tremendous. You know, I've been able to talk with uncle night shift. I've been able to talk to a lot of my modeling heroes, you know, when John made, that model that he was referring to earlier, that Brumbar, I mean, that just blew my mind when I saw that. And yeah, I've been able to talk to the guy that did that. I I agree, Neil, that's, you know, that this community is fantastic
1: and that's what this podcast is kind of all about. Yeah. I I I wouldn't know any of you guys if it weren't for social media, there's no way. How would I have ever known and met any of you? It's such a powerful force for getting to meet people and share ideas. Yeah. I I think social media for me, in fact, you know, it's funny when I first moved out here to California outside of a local hobby shop with two old guys who would, you know, would, you know, tell you, teach you how to do stuff. There was nothing. There was the nearest IPMS I think was in Los Angeles or even South of Los Angeles. So there really wasn't much here, but when social media hit, yeah, that's really a game changer for me.
0: Yeah. I mean, Like Scott was saying, you know, (laughs) him and I became friends over models. I mean, and then we started a a freaking podcast together, which is crazy. And here I am, you know, uh, what, how long have we been doing this, Scott? Four, three months? Four months? Something like that. Since August, however many that is. You know, and we've been friends since 2017, something like that. So going on four years, and I've got to Talk, meet, I guess you would call it, you know, or speak at least with uh, a lot of modelers that I look up to, um, which is awesome. And the fact that anyone that listened to our first episode, and and I'm sure (laughs) John will probably remember when he came on the, the show, I made a point to tell him that I was like fangirling over having him on the show because I knew who he was before all of this and had followed his work and was heavily inspired by it. And here I get to talk to him and have since then continued to speak with them. And the fact that that's happened to me, is just, I mean, it's, it's invaluable.
2: Yeah. I—I I would, you know, echo that some of my best friends are armor modelers and I, I kind of have, you know, two quick stories about, you know, armor modeling and introducing me to people that I would have probably not known otherwise. You know, one is my neighbor, uh, you know, five houses down from me. There's a guy, he's an armor nut, just like us. And the way we met, we were at, you know, we just moved into a new development and built a house and they had a Christmas party. And I wore my ugly sweater that had a hurricane on it. And um, that I got over at the Imperial War Museum and his wife, you know, she didn't know me. She's like, oh, you like airplanes? I'm like, yeah, I like airplanes. Uh, so she's like, oh, my husband likes airplanes. You need to talk to him. I'm like, oh, God what are we going to do <laughs> so you know we, he's like oh you, you know it's like two people feeling each other out on the first date and I, <laughs> you know, one thing led to another and i was in his basement and <laughs> uh, i know that sounds crazy but we we really bonded and he's like oh i you know i actually like tanks i'm like i like tanks too he's like he's like well do you build armor models i'm like yeah do you he's like yeah i'm like do you really build armor models? Because I'm obsessed. And he's like, "No, I do." <laughs> he's like, and we, he pulls up his website. He's got like all this work, and and I knew he was legit when he's like, "Yeah, you know, I have Duel in the Mist, copy one." And for those who don't know, Duel in the Mist, you know, is a series on the Battle of the Bulge, and the first the first segment of it, Duel in the Mist, number one, is one of the most sought after books in all of I think you know either armor modeling or armor historians. It was ran by AP Modeler One Print, and it's gone. And if you see it on Amazon, it's like four grand they listed it for. It's like crazy, but he had it, and I was like, okay, this guy can be my friend. He's 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 at my level, our level,
3: actually. Hey, hey, John, I I, I have to interject on that because when you you talked about Jewel in the Mists, the uh, the first uh, edition of that, when I was writing the the, the big red book, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I was going after uh, photographs on eBay and eBay Germany. I got beaten out on an auction by uh, this guy. So, uh, you know, I shot him a message. I'm like, you know, hey, maybe we can work a deal, licensing thing and so on. And he's like, well, I'm actually part of this group that's doing research on uh, all sorts of World War II stuff. You know, we we, we kind of got this deal where, you know, if you you donate a photograph from your collection, we'll let you use one of ours. And I said, oh, that sounds like a good idea. He said, yeah, well, the problem is I'm in Belgium. And I said, okay, I'll see you Saturday. And uh, so I I got on a plane and and flew to Belgium, and that was Stefan Demeyer, who was oh, one wow, of the man. authors of the uh, the big. And he and I were became very fast friends. You know, I, I, I he he ran a hobby shop in in uh, Belgium, and I think I got there at nine o'clock in the morning. I left at midnight, very drunk. We 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 were best friends ever since until unfortunately he passed a couple of years ago.
2: You know, you you bring up a good point and and I had a similar occurrence. You know, there's a hobby shop. It used to be Hornet Hobbies in Toronto, Canada. And I was up there with a buddy probably about seven years ago, and we go into this shop and we're there probably about half an hour before it closes. And I had we had to pick between wings and wheels and, and Hornet, and we're like, Ah, let's go to Hornet. And um, we go into the hobby shop and immediately I see Mike Rinaldi's Stug 3 sitting in the display case, unmistakable. And I'm like, Whoa, what is this? What is this place? Um, and, you know, I struck up a conversation with the owner. Um, his name's Dave, extremely nice guy. And, you know, he took us to dinner. Afterwards, we went, you know, into his man cave in the basement underneath the hobby shop. And he had work from Shep Payne, Harvey Lowe, Tony Bell. You know, Mike Rinaldi's not only a Stug 3, but his his Pershing there. And, and, and that I, I, and I use that as an example because I've found that, you know, not only armor bottlers, but modelers in general are extremely kind people. And as we've been talking about, it's like, you don't know them, but you know, them and you start talking mm-hmm. them and you become like best friends, almost instantaneously, like stepbrothers. Did we just become best friends? Yes, we did. <laughs> um, and, and that's the thing I think that modeling and, and maybe armor modeling has given me the most uh, just kind of echoing that point. And, Curious if anybody else you know neil shared his example, you know j c or t j Or not, you could ghost me that's fine
1: <laughs> <laughs> like, my only experience with anyone you know of name in the in the in the hobby was back in the two thousands, I was on the mig forums and didn't meet people personally but man i mean Adam Wilder was there Mike Rinaldi was there um some of the you know the european builders were there that was a that was a pretty awesome forum for almer
4: you know i i think this group here today honestly um you know i was telling neil i was fanboy- fanboying a little bit to use uh, tj's term with neil just telling him you know look for years i've been Following for Bo Green and your modeling, I'm such a big fan. You know, when we were putting together episode one of the podcast, I messaged John and said, "Would you mind coming on?" And he didn't even hesitate; he just came on. He didn't know who I was. I could have been the, you know, the biggest goober ever. And you know, JC, you know, I asked him to come on here today, and no hesitation. I mean, this this community, this is what it's all about, man. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, this is definitely not the. The last time that we're going to get some treadheads together to discuss armor modeling. Thank you, everybody. I don't want to keep you all day. Leave some of your, uh, your your day for everything else. But thank you so much for participating. This was a lot of fun. Neil, thank you very much for coming on. You're most welcome. JC, thanks for hopping on the call with us and uh, participating.
1: Hey, thank you very much for inviting me. This has been a blast.
4: JB. Original Posse Man, Episode One. Guy, thank you as always for coming uh, on. It's
1: always a pleasure,
4: never a chore. TJ, my man, as always, thank you so much for participating. Hey, I had to be here. <laughs>
3: That's right. <laughs> let me just let, let me just add my thanks. This has been a lot of fun, you know, to all you guys. I really appreciate the invitation. This has been great.
1: And Neil, just as a, as an aside, talk about fanboying. When when Scott told me that Neil Stokes is going to be on, I was like, wait a minute. I looked over at my shelf, and I'm like, I've got the red TV book. This guy's going to be on? You're going to be kidding
3: me. <laughs> it was amazing. Uh, just don't drop the book on your foot. Yeah. No, I know.
4: <laughs> well, thanks again, guys. And uh, you have a, have a great day, and uh, we'll talk with you all hopefully uh, sooner rather than later. Sounds good. Sounds good. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks, guys.
0: I uh, hope you enjoyed our first roundtable discussion, and we look forward to bringing more of these discussion groups into future episodes. This uh, first one we had was a great discussion, and we had a lot of fun with John, J.C. and Neil. So hopefully
4: everyone enjoyed that too. Thanks, TJ. Well, guys, I think that's about it for episode 12. Thanks so much as always, for listening, and very special thanks go to our roundtable guests, to Anthony Goodman from Goodman Models for his support of the show. To Ian, Terry, and Robert for donating to help the podcast. We really appreciate that to offset our hosting costs. Thanks again, guys. So next time, coming up for episode 13, stay tuned to our Facebook page as we'll be announcing our next very special guest over the next few days. We are really excited about this, and we know you will be too. Super, super excited. It's going to be amazing. You guys are going to love that. Until next time, to all those out there in the posse, and especially to you two guys, Doug and TJ, have a great couple of weeks, and we'll all talk again soon.
5: Bye-bye. <laughs> have
4: a good one. <laughs> <laughs>